welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast. I'm Greg Rowan and I'm a partner in the disputes team in London and one of the general editors of our textbook, Class Actions in England and Wales, which is published by Sweet and Maxwell. Um, I have with me two of the other authors of the textbook, Rupert Lewis, who is head of our banking litigation team in London, and also Simon Clark, who's also a London banking litigation partner and one of our sector leads for banks. This is the fifth of our series of podcasts to mark the launch of the second edition of the book. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be focusing on shareholder claims, which continue to be an area of significant risk for our corporate clients. Rupert, I'll start with you, if I may. Um, going back 10 or 15 years, shareholder class actions weren't really something that um, I associated with this jurisdiction. Um, I'd have said it was much more of a feature of US litigation, but that's changed over the years. Could you um, explain why that's the case and how prevalent these sorts of claims now are in the English courts? Thanks, Greg. Yes, hi, everybody. Um, Greg, as always, you're absolutely right. Uh, historically, shareholder class actions weren't at all common in this jurisdiction. They did tend to be brought in the US, um, even where the claims were related to non-US entities, and there was little other connection with the US. And the reason for this is that US had, and still has, a much more developed class action regime which allows for claims to be brought on behalf of all relevant shareholders on an opt-out basis. But the position has definitely changed in this jurisdiction. I would point to two technical reasons and three more general reasons for this. As regards the two technical reasons, first, way back in 2010, the US Supreme Court handed down judgment in the case of Morrison and National Australia Bank. That decision significantly restricted the extraterritorial application of US securities laws this meant that claimants had to look to alternative jurisdictions to bring shareholder class actions, including um, in England and Wales. Uh, and the second technical reason is that also back in 2010, the ambit of one of the key statutory provisions, Section 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000, was considerably widened. The amendments to that section brought um, into play a much wider range of announcements to the markets by companies. Um, as regards the more general reasons, well, there's no doubt that um, the development of a, a very active litigation funding market in England and Wales in recent years has helped drive greater interest in class actions, including shareholder class actions, as, of course, shareholders form an obvious natural constituency for group litigation. And the quantum of shareholder class actions tend to be larger than in some areas, which means these claims can be particularly attractive to litigation funders. Uh, closely allied to the development in litigation funding has been the growth in claimant law firms targeting this sort of claim. These law firms actively monitor the news, looking for stories which suggest there might be a basis for a shareholder class action. Whenever there is a story suggesting that a listed company has announced some unexpected bad news, particularly where that bad news relates to some form of misconduct, and there has been a subsequent drop in the company's share price, you can be sure that claimant law firms will be assessing whether there might be a basis for a claim. And of course, claimant law firms can now share in recoveries by way of damage-based agreements. Lastly, uh, the financial crisis of 2008 spawned two very large shareholder class actions, one concerning the takeover by lawyers of HBOS uh, and the other concerning a very large rights issue by RBS. Those cases perhaps shone a light on this area and have encouraged more of these sorts of claims. As to how prevalent these claims are, it's difficult to know the true picture as there are likely to be a significant number that are are at the pre-action stage. I think the fairest way to put it is that while there hasn't been a tsunami of these sorts of claims, there has nevertheless 
been a definite and marked increase over recent years, and that trend looks set to continue. Thanks, Rupert. You mentioned there that in the US, shareholder class actions and indeed other class actions can be brought on an opt-out basis. Simon, turning to you, could, could you talk us through how the regime for bringing these claims in the English courts operates and how it contrasts with the US class actions regime? Greg, sure. So in England and Wales, unlike the States, there is no generic opt-out class action procedure which might allow claims to be brought on behalf of a whole class of claimants without specifically identifying them or without having them join the action itself. There's an exception for this in respect of competition claims brought under the Consumer Rights Act, uh, but it is an exception and it doesn't apply more widely than that. There's also uh, the possibility, at least in theory, of a representative claim brought under CPR Rule 19.6, but it's generally been assumed that that's not available for shareholder class actions because there is a requirement that the representative have the same interest as the persons the representative purports to represent. And historically, at least, that's been construed quite strictly. There's a bit of uncertainty there arising from a recent decision from February this year, which appears to take a more liberal approach to the issue of what is the same interest. And perhaps we can come back to that. But it's a different context and it's not a shareholder action. Uh, and as things stand, I think it would be quite surprising if a shareholder action can be brought as an opt-out representative action. I should mention, though, that there have been some public comments by litigation funders who have certainly voiced their interest in bringing shareholder claims using the representative action procedure. So at least the general position is that shareholder claims will need to be issued on behalf of individual and identified claimants. And that means a more involved process and more work for claimants and their law firms. In some of these cases, the courts have made a group litigation order, commonly referred to as a GLO, and that puts in place a case management regime, which allows claims to be managed together, with a requirement that claims are entered into, uh, entered onto rather, a group register, and that has to be maintained by lead claimants listers. But it still uh, is a collection of individual claims. And the, the theory really there is that the GLO groups common issues. It requires some common or related issues of law and fact. And those common issues can be uh, tried, determined more efficiently within a GLO. But nonetheless, there are individual issues which need to be decided separately. In more recent claims, particularly Section 98 claims, as we'll hear, the courts are managing these cases using bespoke case management directions. Often in substance, these are very similar uh, directions to prepare the cases for trial, but without actually making a GLO. And some of the apparatus of a GLO, such as the need to maintain a GLO register, perhaps introduces an unnecessary and unwelcome additional expense. So in summary, the, the key point is that to date at least, shareholder claims have tended to be brought or have had to be brought on an opt-in basis. The economics of this are important, of course. It means that such claims are viable only where the individual losses are significant enough that claimants are prepared to sign up to the claims, but also in aggregate 
that their aggregate value is significant enough to attract litigation funding. So even if the overall loss is large, if individual losses are insignificant, it's still very difficult to get an opt-in class action off the ground. The economics need to be worth it. Thanks, Simon. Um, just picking up on the case that you mentioned about opt-out representative actions, um, that, that was discussed to an extent in the last episode of this podcast. Uh, it's the decision of Mr Justice Knowles in Commission Recovery and Marks and Clark. Could you just tell us a bit more about it, please? Sure. So that case relates to claims for secret commissions paid in respect of referrals by patent attorneys to an IP renewal services provider. And it seems to go further than the Supreme Court decision in Lloyd and Google from late 2021. Lloyd and Google recognised that a representative action might be used as part of what was dubbed a bifurcated procedure. So if there are individual circumstances of claimants were different, nonetheless, common issues, genuinely common issues, could be dealt with on an opt-out basis using a representative action. So, for example, if there was a need to obtain a declaration that a defendant was in breach of their obligations. But then individual issues could be litigated separately. So in this case, Mr Justice Knowles, whom you mentioned, held that the claim for secret commission could be brought as a representative action. I would identify three things which seem to be significant uh, to his thinking. The first that this was that the same interest requirement was construed uh, as a requirement that there be no conflict of interest arising in the case. The second notable feature was that this was a claim, as I mentioned, for recovery of undisclosed commissions rather than a claim for damages, which needed to be assessed on an individualized basis. And then thirdly, uh, and importantly, uh, from a perspective of there being a case at all, and in accordance with the overriding objective, Mr Justice Knowles thought that it was better to have a representative action, even if perhaps not perfect, rather than no action at all. So there's really an access to justice point, which seems to have weighed in his decision there. The judge himself has refused permission to appeal his decision, but I understand that the defendants have applied directly to the Court of Appeal. So there may be more story to tell in due course in relation to this case. If, of course, that approach, the more liberal approach, is followed in other cases, it could be easier to get these sorts of cases off the ground in the future. There's still, I think, an economic problem with the bifurcated approach suggested in Lloyd and Google. And that's this, which is really how the first stage, i.e. that to establish liability on the part of the defendant, can be funded because it doesn't result in a pot of damages for the funder to take their share of. So we'll have to see how it develops more generally. And I think in respect of shareholder claims in particular, nonetheless, these are still claims for damages. And there are certain issues which will arise or problems to a representative action, which we can probably tease out as we look further into the components uh, of the cause of action within the legislative framework. Yes, agreed, Simon, and thanks for that. Um, Rupert, perhaps at that point I could ask you to give our listeners an overview of the sorts of claims that are being brought in this area 
and, and in particular in terms of the legal basis for the claims? Yeah, right. Okay, so there are two statutory provisions that are generally relied on in these actions, Section 90 and Section 98 of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000, or FUSMA, as I'll refer to it uh, briefly. Uh, And the key difference between them is that Section 90 is narrow in scope, but has uh, a lower fault standard, whereas Section 98 is much wider in scope and has a higher fault standard. And I'll explain what I mean. Um, Turning to the scope, um, first, Section 90 provides for liability for untrue machine statements or omissions of necessary information from a prospectus or listing particulars. So it's narrower than Section 98 in that it only relates to these two sorts of very formal documents, prospectuses and listing particulars. Uh, Section 98, in contrast, can apply to any periodic financial disclosure or other information published to the market. So not just the prospectus or listing particulars. Again, liability can arise for untrue or misleading statements or omissions of necessary information, but liability can also arise for delays in publishing information. Now, turning to the fault standard, for Section 90, it is essentially negligence. And more specifically, if claimants can show that a prospectus or listings particulars contains an untrue or misleading statement or an omission of necessary information, it will be a defence to the claim if the defendant can show that it had reasonable grounds for believing the statement to be true or that the omitted information wasn't necessary. So the burden is on the defendant to show it wasn't negligent. In contrast, for Section 90A, there's a requirement for knowledge or recklessness in relation to statements and dishonesty in relation to omissions and delays. So it's effectively a fraud standard, which is obviously a, a very high bar. You could Think of the higher fault standard for Section 98 as in some ways tempering the otherwise very wide scope of Section 98. There are other important differences. For example, a Section 90 claim can be brought against a range of potential defendants, encompassing any person responsible for the relevant document. So significantly, uh, Section 90 claims can be brought against directors as well as the issuing company. In contrast, a Section 98 claim can only be brought against the issuing company. Uh, another point to note is that under Section 98, there's an express requirement in the statute for claimants to establish that they relied on the relevant statement or omission, whereas with Section 90, there is no express requirement in the statute to show reliance. And this gives rise to the interesting questions to whether there is a need to show reliance for a claim under Section 90. There's been no decision on that yet, but the absence of an express requirement in the statute might suggest that there isn't a requirement to show reliance. Uh, I should also add for the sake of completeness that um, in addition to these statutory claims on the Section 90 and Section 98, we do sometimes see shareholder class actions uh, being brought um, under the Misrepresentation Act uh, and common law claims for deceit uh, or negligent misstatement. But those tend to be secondary causes of action and really uh, most of the claims are brought uh, pursuant to Section 90 and Section 98 of PRISMA. Thanks, Rupert. Simon, in the same vein, perhaps I could ask you to talk us through some of the significant cases that we've seen in this space and the basis upon which they've been brought. Yes, so Rupert's already mentioned a couple of them emanating from the financial crisis. Uh, The first was the RBS rights issue litigation. I was one of the partners leading a large HSF team acting for RBS and former directors of RBS in, in that matter. That claim arose from RBS's £12 billion rights issue, which occurred just before the financial crisis. It was a claim brought under Section 90, and it settled shortly before trial in 2017. One of the few shareholder 
class action cases which has reached trial so far is the Lloyd's HBOS litigation. That, in fact, was brought under common law for breach of an equitable duty to provide sufficient information and also duty not to negligently misstate information provided in a circular to shareholders. It was brought under common law because it predated the expansion to Section 90A claims to all information published on a recognised information service. HSF also acted in that case and successfully defended Lloyd's and former directors of Lloyd's at trial. More recently, there's been a slew of cases under Section 90A, including claims against Tesco, that settled in 2021, a claim against RSA Insurance, which settled shortly before trial last year, and also claims against G4S and Serco. All of these have produced some important interlocutory judgments and judgments around case management of Section 90A claims, and we get some insight as to judges' interpretation of the statutory framework. I should also mention there are some ongoing claims, namely against Standard Chartered and Barclays, and there's been a recently filed claim against Glencore, and those three all rely on both Section 90 and Section 90A. Very few of these claims have gone to trial, so there's still limited judicial guidance on many aspects of the statutory regimes. But in relation to Section 90A, there was an important judgment on a strikeout application in the G4S case. And there was also a decision uh, in a case which wasn't a class action because it was brought on by a single shareholder. But actually, it gives some very important guidance on some of the key battlegrounds and shareholder class action cases and guidance on the statutory framework for Section 90A claims. So that's the monster autonomy judgment, and it relates to Hewlett-Packard's acquisition of the UK software company Autonomy in 2012. And the judgment weighs in at a hefty 900 pages and over 4,000 paragraphs. And, and for those who don't have the time to get through the um, 900 pages, Simon, could, could you tell us what, what we know from these judgments about Section 90A, um, which I think you said applies to a broader range of documents than just prospectuses and listing particulars? That's right. And I'll, I'll highlight two aspects in particular, which I think are significant. The, the first point to note is that both decisions shed some light on whose knowledge is relevant for the purposes of a Section 90A claim. Rupert's already mentioned that under Section 90A, we're in essence concerned with a fraud standard. So in respect of misstatement, there must be either knowledge or recklessness that the statement was untrue or misleading. And in the case of omissions, there must be knowledge that the omission was a dishonest concealment of a material fact. But as Rupert also mentioned, for Section 90A, we're only concerned with liability on the part of the issuer. Individual defendants, individual persons can't be liable. So the question which arises is one of attribution. Whose knowledge counts as that of the issuer? Under the Section 90A framework, the relevant knowledge is that of a person discharging managerial responsibility, commonly referred to as a PDMR. For most companies, uh, the definition, uh, which is contained in Schedule 10A of FISMA, uh, is, is any director 
or a person occupying the position of director by whatever name called. In the G4S case, claimants tried to argue that directors should be construed very broadly to include not only appointed directors, legal directors, as well as narrowly recognized categories of de facto and shadow directors, but it should be broader and should include any senior executives who have control over substantial business units who are responsible for managerial decisions affecting those business units. However, the judge rejected such a broad interpretation and decided that directors should be given its usual well-established legal meaning. In other words, it should be the appointed directors, the legal or statutory directors, together with any de facto or shadow directors, as those concepts are ordinarily understood under English company law. Turning to autonomy, the autonomy decision has clarified several key aspects relating to knowledge, including that liability requires the PDMR to have applied their mind to the facts which render the relevant statement untrue or that a material fact was being concealed. And critically, that's at the time of publication of the relevant information. And that really reinforces the point that under Section 90A, the relevant standard is a fraud standard. So these two decisions should give some comfort to, to issuers, to issuer defendants, in terms of whose knowledge counts, whose knowledge is relevant. There are some other important insights that come from the autonomy ju judgment relating to the requirement to establish reliance under Section 90A, which is a key battleground. So three points here. The court clarified first that reliance must be by the person who acquires the securities and not by another person. Second, it must be reliance on the relevant statements or omissions rather than reliance on the published information in a general sense. And that really puts the onus on claimants to identify at least what specific statements in the relevant circular financial statements and so on that they in fact read. They can't just said, well, yeah, I sort of flick read it and, and I relied on that. And thirdly, claimants must, have, must show that they were consciously aware of the statement or omission and that it induced them to enter into the transaction. So it must have been present to their minds at the time that they made their investment decision. That's perhaps tempered by one other point, namely that uh, the judge in autonomy, Mr. Justice Hildyard, found that the presumption of inducement, which uh, applies in common law fraud claims, should also apply in a Section 90A case, so in a Section 90A context. So if a PDMR fraudulently intended the relevant statement to be understood in a certain way, and the claimant, relevant claimant did understand it in that way, that gives rise to a factual presumption that the claimant was induced to make their investment decision by the fraudulent statement. Nonetheless, overall, I think there remains a high bar for establishing reliance. And also, it has to be done at an individual claimant level. Finally, although there's no decided authority on this, it's worth noting that claimants still plead market-based or price-based theories of reliance or fraud on the market doctrine, which applies in some other jurisdictions. However, the autonomy judge judgment casts considerable doubt as to whether these theories really work within the Section 90A framework. 
So it's pretty clear that claimants face some significant hurdles in bringing claims under Section 90A. Do we have any judicial guidance in relation to Section 90 claims or, or claims in this area based on common law causes of action? Rupert, perhaps you could comment on that. Yeah, uh, I'm afraid there's no real judicial guidance at all on Section 90 uh, because none of the claims have gone through to trial uh, and judgment yet. Um, as Simon said, the IBS case was brought under Section 90, uh, but it settled before trial, so we, we didn't get any clarity on uh, the elements of Section 90. Um, I should also mention uh, that in any event, there may be changes on the horizon in relation to liability under Section 90. Um, the government has proposed some pretty fundamental reforms to the prospectus regime, these reforms are contained in the Financial Services and Markets Bill, which was published last July and which is currently progressing through Parliament. Uh, those reforms include revoking the UK market abuse regulation and UK prospectus regulation and giving the FCA the power to set detailed rules on when a prospectus is required and what it should contain. That could ultimately mean a higher threshold for when a prospectus is needed and so a corresponding reduction in the scope to bring Section 90 claims because there'll just be less prospectuses. It may also mean a change to the information that has to be disclosed in a prospectus with an obvious knock-on effect for the question as to what is an omission of necessary information under Section 90. And there may also be a change to the standard of liability for forward-looking information in a prospectus so that liability is based on recklessness rather than effectively negligence, as is currently the case. But none of that is certain, so we'll have to watch this space. In terms of the common law causes of action, there is some helpful guidance from the Lloyd's H. Boss judgment, including as to the duties that apply to directors in preparing a shareholder circular. It was a shareholder circular which was a subject of that claim. But perhaps of greater general interest is the court's approach to issues of reliance and causation in that case. In particular, the court found that the claimant's evidence didn't properly engage the need to prove that the shareholders had read and relied on the alleged misstatements when deciding whether to approve the HBOS acquisition. And in relation to causation, the court was critical of the claimant's evidential approach, saying the claimants had not established any factual basis for alleging that a majority of shareholders would not have approved the acquisition if certain information had been disclosed. Could, could we turn now to um, how these claims play out in practice? Are there any particularly significant strategic battlegrounds that our, our clients should be aware of? Simon, perhaps I could ask that one to you. Sure, there, there are a number to highlight. Uh, the first is the need to scrutinise the standing of claimants. So are the claimants all legal entities? Did they hold the shares at the relevant time? In essence, do they have the necessary standing to bring their claims? Another one relates to limitation. Are there possible limitation defences uh, which should be run? Are there limitation issues? And it's perhaps worth noting that a common feature of these claims is certainly recent Section 90A claims, is that they've been brought years after the event, often after there have been some regulatory investigation or other investigation which has generated reports or other evidence which are then relied on. So, as I say, some of these claims have been uh, brought years after the event and may be pushing right up against relevant limitation periods. So conceivably, at least, it may be possible to strike out some of the claims at an early stage if, for example, the claimants don't have standing or haven't paid proper attention to limitation. 
However, the most significant battleground that tends to arise is the question of whether there should be a split trial, and if so, what the split should be. The usual dynamic here is that it tends to be in the interests of claimants to seek to postpone to a second trial issues such as reliance, causation, quantum and limitation. And that enables claimants to focus in the first trial on the conduct of the defendant. That would obviously maximise pressure on the defendant, maximise pressure on the defendant in particular, uh, with a view to settlement perhaps. And also it enables claimants to push back uh, the point at which they really need to, to start doing the most work themselves and incurring the most significant proportion of their legal costs. On the defendant side, defendants would generally want to resist such a split, and they'll argue that it leads to an unfair division of the burden of litigation. Also, at least conceivably, it can lead to a risk that claimants' witnesses are influenced by liability findings as and when they come to prepare evidence in relation to reliance, if reliance is hived off to be a trial two issue. So the question of whether there should be a split, and if so, where that split should be drawn, uh, is a a question which arises often and a question of case management for the court. Different approaches have been taken in different cases, and sometimes even at different stages of the same case. However, from the defendant's perspective, perhaps the, the key aim for defendants, if questions of reliance are to be hived off to a second trial, is to ensure that claimants nonetheless have to particularise their case on reliance during the the first stage, during trial one uh, phase, and ideally also to provide disclosure in relation to their reliance cases. So far, at least, where reliance has been postponed to a second trial, the courts have generally required a degree of transparency, transparency as to what the claimant's cases are in relation to reliance. And this transparency and the fact that it may be helpful for promoting settlement of cases has been recognised by the court so far. Claimant participation in proceedings has also been recognised as a relevant factor in order to balance out the litigation burden between claimants and defendants. And to avoid what counsel in the RSA case coined, if you'll excuse the pun, as slot machine litigation. What was meant there is litigation whereby claimants subscribe their participation fee at the outset of the proceedings and expect the pound coins to come spewing out at the end without them having to do any real work in the meantime. So particularisation of cases and disclosure in respect of issues such as reliance means at least that that if there has to be a second trial, it can also be dealt with in a reasonable timescale after the first trial because more preparation of will have been done to tee up the second trial, and that avoids prolonging the proceedings yet further. Good. Finally then, Rupert, there's scope for securities class actions to be used in connection with the focus by investors on ESG concerns that we're obviously hearing a great deal about. Could you explain how that arises, please? Yeah, um, there are a number of ways in uh, which this might arise. For example, in relation to environmental concerns, the listing rules require listed companies to make disclosures under the TCFD framework. As I'm sure many of the, those listening know, TCFD stands for the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, 
uh, and was set up by the Financial Stability Board. The TCFD framework, broadly speaking, requires businesses to explain how they intend to identify and address the risks arising from climate change. Listed companies are required to include a statement in their annual report about whether they have made disclosures consistent with the TCFD framework on a comply or explain basis. And the requirement has been in place since the 1st of January 2021 for premium listed companies and since the 1st of January 2022 for standard listed companies. More generally, there has been an increasing tendency amongst uh, listed companies to emphasise their green credentials and green products when publishing information to the market. And shareholder class actions, in particular claims pursuant to Section 90 and Section 90A of FISMA, provide a means for testing the accuracy of these claims, these climate-related disclosures and statements. That said, uh, it is interesting to note that the legal mechanism by which the legal charity Climate Earth has recently challenged Shell's climate transitions plans was a derivative claim against the board rather than a shareholder class action. A derivative claim is a claim brought on behalf of the company against its directors for breach of their director's duties. Any damages are paid to the company and not to the shareholder bringing the claim, so quite different from claims under Section 90 and Section 98. In relation to governance concerns, where there have been findings of criminal wrongdoing by law enforcement authorities, this is likely to be very fertile ground for shareholder class actions. For example, there are shareholder class actions on the go in this jurisdiction against G4S, as Simon has already mentioned, and Glencore, both of which arise off the back of action taken by the Serious Fraud Office and US law enforcement agencies. For these sorts of claims, the focus is likely to be on previous statements made to the market about the strength and adequacy of the company's financial crime systems and controls, so an aspect of their governance. Finally, it's perhaps also worth noting that litigation funders appear to be using the ESG label, if I can call it that, as a way to encourage institutional investors to join in securities class actions. The funder points to the investor's own stated aims when it comes to ESG investments and argues that joining in a claim against a listed company would be a way in which that uh, investment company can further those ESG aims. So the ESG label is really a way to encourage investors to join in these sorts of shareholder class actions. Thanks for that, Rupert. And um, that brings us to the end of our podcast. So thank you to Rupert and Simon and to everybody listening. We'll be back with further editions in this series uh, shortly.